動でお風呂を沸かします Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered round the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that there's hardly any fresh water on Easter Island, so the indigenous people drank straight from the sea. That's why they're dead. (laughs) They all immediately died. They landed there. A thousand years ago, all died. Um, No, they didn't die. This is the amazing thing about it. So Europeans first got there in the 1700s, 1722. They noticed that the indigenous people there, the Pacific Islanders who travelled over there hundreds of years earlier, seemed to be drinking straight from the sea. Very confusing. (laughs) Haven't thought about it again for 400 years. And then scientists looked into it and they realised that actually fresh water kind of emerges on the shore. What? So it's... The fact that there's there's no fresh water or very little fresh water because the soil is super porous. And Mm. so it rains and the soil just sucks it in straight away. No streams or anything. But the rainwater goes down into the earth and then travels out to the beach underground. And then it re-emerges like just at the shoreline. So when the tide's out, you can kind of go and scoop up some of that, you know, water which is in the very shallows of the sea. And it's still salty. Don't get me wrong. I think it would taste like shit. Yeah. But... <laughs> well, it tastes like salt. <laughs> it all tastes like salt. But it's not salty enough that it dehydrates yeah. you to death. So it's like a river, but it's underground, kind of, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. How did they survive long enough to experiment with that to not be wiped out? Like, that's extraordinary, right? I thought initially yeah. that it would just um... be a body of water that was consistently there. You're telling me a tide has to go out and then they find the water? Yeah, although the tide does um, go out most days. Yeah, true. Fact. But, but, you want, but, <laughs> but, but to... it's, annoying. it's annoying having to wait yeah. 12 yeah. hours. If yeah, you but it's time annoying. It like this morning, I had to wait for Starbucks to open. That's annoying yeah, that's as well. That's, that's the, the same. Annoyance. It's the same, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we can empathise in a lot of ways. <laughs> I guess you, you know, if you're thirsty and you're really dying of thirst and the only water that you can see is the water on the shore of the sea, maybe you give it a try. Mm. Yeah. And also it's a 1200s, they didn't know anything. It's very far away from it. Can we just say how far away from stuff Easter Island is? The nearest inhabited island is 2000 kilometers away. South America is three and a half thousand kilometers away. So it's in the very, very, yeah, yeah. it's in the South Pacific, isn't it? And it's just mm. so far from everywhere. It's kind of halfway between Chile and Australia. Yeah. Isn't yeah. it really? Because yeah. when I went to South America, I thought, oh, we'll just pop over to Easter Island for maybe a couple of days. Mm. That'd be really really cool and then i looked about how long the flight was gonna be i'm not gonna get there and that's the amazing thing isn't it how did people get there yeah how did people end up there well we know it's the polynesians right but like how did they discover the island what were they doing there's a lot of origin stories there's a lot of archaeological like everyone has a different idea that they bring to the table but no one can decide your your idea would be the aliens one i suppose dan is there an alien one of course there's an alien (laughs) your mate dan Eric von Daniken. Is this yeah. the one you're talking about, James? Well, it's just the that's the famous one, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. He thinks that a, a race of superior intelligent creatures got shipwrecked, effectively, on Easter Island, mm. yeah. taught the locals how to make the statues, started making a load of them for their own amusement, then got picked up before they'd finished all of them, which is why some of the statues are not finished, yeah, and then just left again. His uh, basically theory is that if there were ever any really amazing structures made where white people <laughs> weren't there, then it must be aliens. <laughs> so you can be pretty sure that... Yeah. He would think that here. He's not my mate, by the way. Can I just quickly <laughs> yeah. He's asked specifically not to be associated with me. So 
<laughs> but yeah, Andy, about the say. statues, that's the famous thing, right, isn't mm. it? The statues, the big heads yeah. on Easter Island. And there's a thing about the big heads that they tend to be clustered near the areas where you can get this water. And so some people think that maybe they were kind of a marker to tell you where the best places to get a little bit of drinking water oh, were. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. They've recently realized that the positioning of the statues coincides with uh, particularly these areas of freshwater springs. And even inland, it coincides with places where you'd be able to get a well and get some fresh water. So and it makes sense. So if you're going to cool. signpost anything as a bunch of rural islanders, you probably signpost water, don't you? But that's yeah. such big signposts. That's the thing. It's an amazingly, <laughs> it's a, so much effort to go to, to flag there is water here but it was kind of their thing though wasn't it like there's a thousand of them on the island yeah. you know they'd make it up in this hill bit where they used um volcanic rock and ash that that was called tough and they would carve and then they would drag down and slide down uh, with an amazing sort of hit rate of not damaging them as well which is pretty extraordinary given their size you know there's people who've gone and visited and seen broken ones but on average it was said that they could just bring them down these giant structures and walk them to where they needed to be and some of them would be as you say would be facing water some would be facing inland to protect the land some there's seven in particular which were meant to represent seven different polynesian tribes that had come over oh, so cool. that a group of people facing the direction of which they all originated from we don't know if that that's true that's just a theory. that's a theory on the yeah. island yeah the big question is when they were transporting them down did they slide from the top of the hill on the moai like <laughs> they were sledges on the on the moai oh, they're called moai the statues oh i'm sorry i thought you meant did the statues slide on yeah yeah, yeah. on no no but no. They, they might have been the statues might have sledged that's one theory Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or they might have been put on log rollers. Well, Dan said walked, didn't he? And mm. the other theory is that they walked into position, that you put a big rope around them and just stroll them. You know, like when you're trying to move a heavy bit of furniture. Like a fridge. Yeah, you lift one corner mm. and move that, and then you put that and down. And the aliens are going, pivot! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other thing about them, which I think you found out recently, James, I mean, you weren't the original person to find it out, <laughs> but is that there's as much of them underground as above ground. Yes. Unbelievable, they're not heads. They're just statues of entire bodies. But apparently over hundreds of years, soil accumulation and various bits of erosion and stuff buried the bodies. Isn't that incredible, though, that they didn't bury the bodies themselves? So it's not like they hid it. Enough erosion has happened that all of them just seem to have a head left. Yeah. yeah. That's it's quite like amazing. Someone, it's like a kid been buried in the sand yes, and yeah. his parents have left him there. Um, we haven't talked about the most interesting structures on Easter Island, I would say, oh, yeah. which oh, yeah. is their chicken houses. Do oh, you guys yeah. read about these? No. no. So they've got great chicken houses. They're called Haremoa, and they were almost impregnable to robbers because there were, obviously it was a time of long decline on the island. You needed to protect your protein wherever you could. Yeah. So chickens is kind of vital. They should have really pivoted completely to chickens, I think. But I'm not going to give them advice. Look, they've clearly been through a lot. Anyway, these chicken houses were really good. They were uh, two metres high, up to 20 metres long, made completely of stone. Like this huge cairn of stones, basically. And um, they are quite mysterious because the other thing about them is that human skulls have been found inside the chicken houses. Whoa, are we thinking the chickens actually were eating the humans? (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) Well, Do you think the chickens made the massive heads because they thought, Human heads are so delicious. If we make some massive yeah. ones, then that will bring It'll us bring more. more. I think that's it. Yeah, <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think theory. And again, it's so much theorizing. I think it's that they were chiefs' skulls, and that they were believed to have a fertilizing power. These skulls oh. to increase the egg yields. So oh, really? pretty goth to ah. just have some skulls in your, your yeah. hen house. Yeah. I knew you'd like those hen houses because they're yeah. like dry stone walls, aren't they? Andy? Yeah, they are. They're very, <laughs> yeah. very similar. And you said how they're impregnable. The interesting thing about that is they're made like dry stone walls, so they're 
They're made of loads and loads of stones going all the way around. But one of the stones you can pull out and use it as a door. But unless you're the one who built it, you don't know which stone it is. No. And so you can you can get in and get your chickens out, but no robber can get the chickens out. That's so fantastic. Good. Wow. So good. I'd love to go to East Rutland and only photograph the chicken houses. I would really <laughs> come back with a slideshow for my family. There are 1,233 of those chicken houses and only 887 stone heads. So I, I, think, I think we're concentrating on the wrong thing. I couldn't agree more. And do you think they should have pivoted to chickens because of the other thing that for the basis of their protein diet which was rats oh another good reason to pivot to chickens I yeah so many reasons to pivot to chickens <laughs> uh they they've done some studies recently some analysis of the teeth of skeletons right. and it shows that their source of protein was rats and they ate loads of rats although apparently pacific island rats are slightly tastier than european rats <laughs> okay <laughs> who's, who's studied this yeah. well, yeah, you just that. read this in new scientist or something so i don't know how much all the researchers have gone yeah. to compare yeah. them yeah, i'm, I'm still not going to kentucky fried rats that's yeah. what i'm saying <laughs> um but as you say andy and Dan, the theorizing is out of control. Yeah. We know yeah. almost nothing. So pretty much everything we've said so far is just, you know, based on a few bits of evidence and we piece stuff together. The stuff we know for sure is stuff that's told from living memory. Mm. And so the stuff we know for sure is actually about the cult that followed the big head cult, which is the Birdman cult. And we do actually have information about that. And this is another theory about who knocked down the heads. So okay. basically, Western has arrived and sometime after Cook went there in the late 1700s, then the head cult was replaced with this Birdman cult so they just tore down the heads because they were like we're the guys in charge now but the cool thing mm. about the Birdman cult was how they elected their head poncho did you read this did you say poncho, poncho. poncho. I said poncho oh good <laughs> oh I heard poncho as well it's weird because head honcho is a phrase but head poncho isn't a phrase that's why we were surprised to hear it <laughs> I like, it's almost a better phrase it is, I'm the yeah. head poncho here. especially poncho. if you got a really awesome poncho yeah. whenever you get become head I think it would need that yeah <laughs> <laughs> is it poncho. just for your head are you wearing a poncho for your body and then you've got a head poncho on top yeah double poncho this is what they wore on the islands because I know what I know what a poncho is and that's why I like the phrase but I don't know what a honcho is really apart from some guy you never hear about honcho when not preceded by head, do you? You never hear about no. the second honcho and No, you never do. <laughs> no, no. Vice honcho. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I'm the assistant honcho. <laughs> well, look, the head honcho competition yeah. in the Birdman cult uh, was to elect the Tangata Manu, who was the Birdman of the year. It happened every year. And essentially, it was the first person to find the first egg that was laid by the sooty tern every year. Hmm. And the way they did it was... <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's not. Did they go like just whisper in his ear like What's a little that? bear? What's, What's that, Sooty Turn? <laughs> <laughs> you were the honcho last year, Sooty. It's Sweep's turn now. <laughs> Maybe all the statues are hollow inside. <laughs> <laughs> it's a massive Matthew Corbett who comes along and yeah. with incredibly strong arms. They're the yeah. finger puppets of the gods. Yeah. That's what they are. Oh, that is a Von Daniken book. I absolutely <laughs> would devour. <laughs> Sorry, they're trying to find the egg. Yeah, it does, the... does feel like we have wandered off course. Uh, they're trying to find the egg of the city turn. And okay. the way they do it is the main competitors would either compete themselves or they'd elect a hopu, which was someone who competed on their behalf. And what they had to do was they had to climb down this cliff. They'd have to swim a mile out to sea, very rough seas, right. uh, mile out to sea and land on this island. And it was the island where all the birds came and laid their eggs every spring. So they'd wait there for a few weeks on this island. And then eventually the birds would arrive. The first one to spot the first egg 
egg would signal back to the main island and say, I've got the egg, you win, master. And then the reward, here's where it gets really exciting if you're the first one to get the egg, is you get to uh, shave off your eyebrows and eyelashes and your head, your hair, not your head. Um, (laughs) And you took a new name that was adopted as the name of the year and then you danced and sang your way to the royal residence where you had to live in total seclusion for a year. And that's that what you get. sounds quite good, actually. Yeah. Living in total seclusion for a year. Yeah, and people brought you food, actually. Did they? Yeah. Ugh, it's a dream. Sounds... But the food was rats. <laughs> it was all rats. <laughs> but, but nice rats. So yeah. Not, yeah. Nice. <laughs> all of the statues were knocked over. Yeah. At mm. some point after first Western contact, yeah. when the first um, sailors arrived, which was 1722, uh, there was a, Dutch, a Dutchman called Jacob Roggeveen. He visited on Easter Day in 1722, which is why he gave it the name Easter Island. They were all standing. They were all fine. Yeah. He didn't know, there are no descriptions of any that had fallen over. And then mm. a couple of hundred years later, they're all knocked over. Mm. And it would have taken a huge amount of effort to knock them over. The people clearly decided, yeah. we don't want these anymore. Yeah, I think they felt. Well, this is one of the many theories. Let's oh, get this. So many theories. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah, but this is the theory, I think, on the side of the kind of more mythological side oh, is okay. that they were idols to the gods. Yeah. And because the island had been so ravaged in terms of the deforestation that they'd done and so on, because that's the main thing, isn't it? There's hardly any trees there left anymore. And so they couldn't make uh, canoes to go and fish. And so they ran out of food. And so it was anger. And they knocked down the statues to say, fuck you, God. Mm. Um, wow. That's yeah. quite angry because I can imagine being angry and having a pen in your hand and throwing it to the ground and stuff but actually to be so angry that you knock over a massive statue and then another and then another and yeah. then like hundreds and hundreds of them wait were they lined up like dominoes yeah it's yeah impossible. <laughs> you only need to get one over originally that would be amazing <laughs> maybe that's it it was a mistake it was a mistake <laughs> some dude was just leaning on and chatting up the girl hey, Mr Bean went to yeah. Easter Island didn't he <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that last year, Dublin Airport received 13,569 noise complaints. 12,272 of those were made by one person. <laughs> oh, no. One single person. 12,000 in a year. Uh, yeah, it was averaging basically 34 a day, roughly. Um, That's basically presumably every time a plane takes off. I right? think so, yeah. We don't know who this person is, by the way. They've they've kept them anonymous. I don't know why. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it's something that they've done before many times. Uh, they've <laughs> doubled their amount of complaints that they previously had done. So this isn't like they just popped out of nowhere. Right. They've been complaining for years. Weirdly, obviously due to the pandemic, you know, flights have been down, but the complaints have been going up. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they did kind of pop out of nowhere because... Uh, they came along, I think, in 2018. Mm. In 2018, there were 628 complaints. Uh, in 2019, 3,147 in the first six months of the year. Mm. And then not that many since then, but some. Uh, and then, like you say, this last right. couple of years, they've really picked up again. Is it someone who's erected a tent on the runway? Just how... That's what I was wondering. Or someone who, someone who set up an automatic system... That every time the noise goes over a certain volume, so that that is possible. Now, the, what this did happen in Heathrow uh, in 2015, mm. Heathrow found that some people had automated software that could generate complaints, <gasps> and they found out because when the clocks changed, they didn't change the clocks on their system, so they started complaining about flights that hadn't taken off yet. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that's, that's amazing. So cheeky, they were what they were. They would they would find out when a plane was taking off. 
and automatically their computer would just send an email. That's I think that is I think that is cheeky because yeah. I think it's got to be you've got to have the noise you've got to have experience I think the noise. that's that's what Heathrow thought as well yeah. <laughs> do we know oh. if they bothered to make each email different like did they write a thousand dear, different words? dear sir emails? dear madam <laughs> hello <laughs> further to my previous email or this one were they all clones of each other this person they, they haven't said yeah I, I imagine it's pretty much the same email that would come through well um. this person doesn't actually live that close to the airport <laughs> either that's Wait, the weird the thing we know where they live they know where they live Oh, right. Ongar, which is about 20 miles away from the airport. Oh. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is Dublin Airport are actually quite good neighbours if you look into it. As far as I'm concerned, they seem to be. And they'll offer to buy your house, for instance, if it's too much oh, wow. okay. um, on a regular basis, especially since they got their new runway. But this person is outside of that distance. Uh, they can't be helped by any of these systems. Oh, so that could be why they, they're complaining. Yeah. Mm. And flight paths can be, you know, devils. If you like, if you yeah. like West London, is so much of it's under the Heathrow yeah, flight yeah. path that yeah. you, you, get, you get so many planes a day. It also does seem that you do get these individuals, like these singular individuals that make it their mission to do it so this Her- in- heroes i call them heroes exactly <laughs> so the same thing happened for reagan airports in washington in 2015 they had 8670 noise complaints and 6500 of those were from a single person mm-hmm. as well yeah it's just some heroes as andy say <laughs> there's a secret society there's a masons for complainers yeah, somewhere that cool. we don't know about yeah. do you think that these people have time to go to a secret society because <laughs> to me i don't think they do my uh, noise complaints are just ridiculous sometimes in terms of when you read the headline you think how's that possible my favorite one that i've read recently a canadian city made a noise complaint against an american city oh yeah yeah oh, wow so this was windsor ontario and they were making a complaint against detroit and it was <laughs> Because, <laughs> yeah, so the Detroit River is a there's a one kilometer waterway between Windsor and Detroit, yeah. and they were having a festival on the riverbank with they said on Windsor's side the sound system facing directly towards them, <laughs> and so they received all these complaints from about one thirty to two thirty in the morning when the music was still playing, wow. and all the complaints directed on the Windsor side to their council to say we want you to write to Detroit's council and officially log this as a noise complaint, and they did. <laughs> Yeah, they got an official. A city got an official noise complaint from another city. That's great. Yeah, and this. Imagine if this was the Franz Ferdinand moment for the civil war between Canada. And... Ironically, that's the music they were playing. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking a bit at the history of filing sound complaints. Oh yeah. I think the earliest I could find uh, the earliest official sound complaint, which resulted in you know action being taken, was in 1302. Uh, this was in the UK, and it was a petition by a bunch of friars, and it's just so fun because it's just exactly the same as we would say today exactly the same kind of complaint so they requested that this courthouse the courthouse of Catasol should not be rebuilt to the damage and nuisance of the friars their complaint was that when it rains people who are going to the courthouse seek refuge for themselves and their horses in the church of the friars while the friars are saying mass which uh, actually does sound quite annoying annoying, yeah yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's quite hard to shout mass over the noise and the press of the people and especially if they've taken a vow of silence or something that would be really annoying. Yeah, they can't shout them down. <laughs> just sit there swearing at them. Gosh. I read another study by Manchester Met, and this is going back to the airports. Uh, mm. This was complaint data at Manchester Airport um, from between 1998 and 2000. And they found what we found, which is that there is a subgroup of serial complainers out of all the complaints. Uh, so they described is a that serial... that like cornflakes not crunchy <laughs> enough? <laughs> exactly. Gosh. <laughs> Where can I address my complaint about that, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> 
I think if people are <laughs> complaining about our jokes, then they would be serial complainers. Because a serial complainer is someone who makes more than 50 complaints a year uh, oh, yeah. versus a normal complainer who is someone who does less than that. Um, but they profiled serial complainers. Oh, cool. Uh, and they found, really interestingly, that a serial complainer would tend to send all of their emails between 10 p.m. and 1 a.m. And then again in the morning from 7 a.m. to about 8 a.m. Mm. So they do it just before they went to bed or just before they got up. Whereas a normal complainer would do it at any time of the night. So they might do it at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. So what that suggests is that the normal complainers are actually being woken up by the planes and gone, oh, for God's sake, and sending an email. Whereas the serial complainers are doing it just before they go to bed, maybe after a few drinks, I don't know. (laughs) And then first thing in the morning when they remember, oh, that was really annoying last night kind of thing. I can, you sort of understand the late evening one where people, oh, they're stewing, yeah, you know, yeah. like, I'm, I've got to complain about this, I'm so mm. annoyed. Where I, early morning, I don't get at all. I uh, wonder sometimes, it's like you want to send an email at night time, and you're like, if I send it now, people will think I'm drunk sending it, so yeah, I'm going to wait till the morning yeah, yeah. and I'm going to send it then. It's or a schedule me, send. Yeah. Yeah. They've scheduled a send. <laughs> or let me reread the draft that was furious well, I that. in the I'll write an angry email in there, but I, I normally end up not sending that email. Yes. Or instead sending an apology. <laughs> <laughs> What, sending an apology instead of <laughs> to the, the airport. Yeah. Love all the noise. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> Keep it up. Turn it up. <laughs> I can take it. <laughs> this fight was about Dublin Airport. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Most famous Irish uh, airline. Aer Lingus. Come on, Andy. Ryanair. Yeah, Ryanair. <laughs> it's got to be Ryanair. I know Aer Lingus is a very famous one. I only named the national carrier. I'm afraid yes. I, I say that against priority. Sorry, Ryanair, Ryanair. The really interesting thing is that Ryanair is founded by a guy called Tony Ryan, right? He's really famous. He leased, um, he owned a leasing company first. And even today, Ireland leases about 40% of all the aeroplanes in the sky at any time. So most of the smaller airlines don't own the airplanes that they own. They're leased from someone else. Right. And a lot of that's from Ireland. And this was all goes back to this guy called Tony Ryan. He decided he wanted to set up an airline and it's called Ryanair, but it's not named after him. Oh, <laughs> Isn't that amazing? He wanted to call it Trans Tipperary Airlines. <laughs> um, but his friend and someone who he set up the business with called Christy Ryan decided he wanted to name it after him. And so Christy Ryan said, I know, I want to name it after me and call it Ryanair. And Tony Ryan said, you can't name it after you. And he said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And in the end, they decided and called it Ryanair. But Tony Ryan is the really famous guy who everyone... But it's not the Ryan. No, and it, that's, really that's, that's so interesting because online it always... Cla- I thought it was, wasn't named after Christopher and it was named after Tony. Because, yeah, it always says it's named after Tony Ryan. But secretly yeah. it's the Christopher. That's, that's yeah. very funny. That's My amazing. God. <laughs> um, I was reading a very tiny bit about noise on planes. So, because obviously we're talking about noise when you're on the ground from an aeroplane plane but oh, yeah. it's huge when you're inside and they do a lot to try and fix it make it better make it more manageable one of the things that affects is your food on a plane they found in research when you're eating food the noise can t- it can mess with your taste buds um, and so British Airways in 2014 released a little thing called sound bites so the idea would be that the food that you ordered on the plane yeah. you could go into the system your little entertainment system and you could find a track that plays a curated <laughs> bit of noise cool. to listen to while you're eating that meal to match <laughs> the taste yeah. and help oh, you out with the idea. food that would yeah. work 
I've been to the Fat Duck, you know, uh, Heston Blumenthal's place, and he plays music sometimes to you when you mm. eat a certain thing. You'll have to wear headphones and listen to the sound of the sea while mm. you eat some seafood and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So it'd be like Verdi would be playing, you know, while you're eating on the airplane. It's a pasta. Exactly. It is that. It is that. If but you're then... on your way to Easter Island, just the sound of rats screaming. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got a case study for you. Oh, go on. Okay, you live in a seaside flat, right? Yes. In Italy. Oh, mm-hmm. lovely. Lovely. Uh, it's a, so it's a block of flats, uh, uh, and then yeah. your, your neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a flat. It's which, not one of those um, solo which flats. Coast? Oh, it's in the, the Bay of Poets, I think it's called. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Romantic. Um, so help. there are four brothers who own the flat next door. Right. They install a lavatory, okay, yeah, in one of their rooms. Fine. Yeah, it's fine. But it's right next to the headboard of your bed, uh, and it's so loud. Yeah. Whose side are you on? The... Uh, but I'm the person Well you live in the flat I actually, live in the other so. flat yeah. Yeah. So someone's taking a shit Next to your head every day Pretty much Or every night and I think I might consider moving Flipping my <laughs> bed around So that my headboard Isn't right there well, This is the thing The, the couple f- said Of our home is so small We can't rearrange the furniture oh. Okay So this Get this This happened in 2003 Yep The couple who owned the flat Which I've put you all in Said the noise is intolerable They took it to a judge Got thrown out They went to an appeal court The appeal court judge said Actually, that is bad for your quality of life. Okay. The brothers fought back and took it to the Supreme Court. Wow. This year, in 2022, 19 years after the original complaint. <gasps> oh, my God. And they've been holding a shit in all that time. <laughs> it's been settled. On whose side? In favor of the couple who owned the flat. They, wow. The brothers have had to pay 10,000 euros almost. And so it's, what's, what do they do now, the brothers? Some... Yeah. Outdoor WC? Well, I don't think they sound could sound. I don't know if they could sound. Maybe they have to use their loo. Move the loo? I don't know. Anyway. Or put lots of loo roll down before you do a number two. <laughs> I think it was the flush more than the... Okay. <laughs> the plots. <laughs> the plots weren't the problem. But the Giornale newspaper said, in far less time than this case took, Albert Einstein wrote the theory of relativity ah. explaining the whole universe. It's hard though, isn't it? I mean, that you can see both sides. Yeah. I think. Mm. You've got to have a place to have... You've got to have yeah, a toilet. You've got to have a loo. Yeah, yeah. But also, you've got to be able to sleep somewhere, and these are small places. Yeah. Is it four brothers? Yeah. It's <laughs> a bit of the story that no one's picked up on. <laughs> what? That there what? are four brothers? Living together for 19 years? Yeah, I, I think that's know. a bit odd. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's quite a good point. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Good life. Move out. Why hasn't one of them got married? Yeah. What is happening with that family? <laughs> I think they're doing it deliberately. Is that what you're saying? They've clubbed together and deliberately said they'll devote their lives to <laughs> torturing this couple. I don't know. I just think when it comes to court, when it's four brothers living together for 19 years, I would think something weird's going on there. Yeah. I'm going to leave you guys alone. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm with well, you. No further questions, Your Honor. <laughs> the, the prosecution rests. <laughs> four brothers? <laughs> Do me a favour. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that in her lifetime, Emily Dickinson was better known as a baker than as a poet. Well, she thought it was a really good baker or a really bad poet? Uh, probably a, an unknown <laughs> poet. People didn't really know that she did poetry, and people did know that she did baking. Um, if you don't know who Emily Dickinson is, she is probably one of the most famous American poets. Mm. In her lifetime, didn't really sell or publish anything, just one or two little things. Uh, people didn't really know about her. She didn't want anything to be published. But what she was famous for in her area was making loads of cakes, loads of delicious things that she used to give to all the children all the time. Uh, and so there's a 
new book that's come out called the Emily Dickinson Cookbook by <laughs> Arlene Osborne. Uh, and in that, she says she was better known as a baker than a poet. Uh, although there is another book that I've seen, which is about Emily Dickinson's gardening. And in that book, it says she was better known as a gardener than a poet. So <laughs> oh, it what? kind of feels like whatever you're writing the book about, you can say yeah, that. She basically but... wasn't known as a poet. Is what <laughs> I think that's what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But what's amazing, though, is like she's known for the gardening. She's known for the bakery. But actually, she was kind of a recluse for most of her life, wasn't she? So I think kind of is a, a weak way of referring to what was, was extreme recluseville. But so well, how do we know about her gardening and her on, bakery? Guys, hang on, she, guys. Every- she, hang on. She had some pretty public experiences in the baking sphere, and I'd refer you to the 1856 Amherst Cattle Show, where <laughs> her round loaf of Indian and rye bread won second prize. So let, before we say she was a recluse, <laughs> let's just think about that. She was living in the public sphere, in the blaze of publicity. Uh, to be fair, her sister, uh, Vinnie, was one of the judges for that competition so right. slightly yeah. Yeah. Oh, makes yeah. me think she actually wasn't a very good baker <laughs> your sister's in the competition you still can't come back first prize <laughs> come on mate she used to make gingerbread really good mm. gingerbread and she used to lower it down for neighbourhood children so she loved children Emily Dickinson and um, they kind of, the people in the area in the neighbourhood kind of knew about her this she was a recluse, as you say, later on in life, post this great um, competition triumph thing. <laughs> um, but the children knew about her and they'd run to her window and then she erected a kind of basket which she lowered down on a string. And one of the people, one of the boys, remembered her later on doing it and she'd do it and make it like a game. So she'd do it very, very gradually and gingerly. Gingerly. Brilliant. Um, <clears throat> uh, so as not to let the domestic servant know, because otherwise domestic servant Maggie would be very angry. Um, and then the kids would have to creep through the grass and then grab the gingerbread and leave her. Sounds like Maggie's getting ideas above her station if she's stopping the lady of the house from giving out free gingerbread. Uh, well, you know, it's good to know what side you're on. Um, <laughs> What's wrong with giving the local children gingerbread? I just think Why lady is... of the house is a little bit... She was the lady think... of the house. Yeah, Maggie okay. hasn't made gingerbread for the children. She's made it for, you know... Was she giving away gingerbread that Maggie had made? Yes. So why is Actually, Emily Dickinson getting the credit for all this baking when she's giving away someone else's gingerbread? Sorry, you're right. This boy said, I don't know if uh, Emily Dickinson had made the gingerbread or if Maggie had made the gingerbread, but she seemed to be afraid of Maggie telling her not to. So you're right. I think Maggie is getting ideas above her station. <laughs> stopping Emily from giving out her gingerbread. Actually, if Maggie had made it, I'm now come back round to her point of view and I think she's getting ideas at her station. <laughs> like she's correct to be irritated about this. Yeah. It was actually quite a quite a good spot for uh, literary figures oh, yeah. this Amherst place because you had not only Emily Dickinson who obviously found out that she was amazing after her death but you had people like Melville Dewey was there was he from the Dewey Decimal System yeah he was Yeah, where, where did he live he from lived- number one to number 121.04 he was so he came up with the system while he was an assistant librarian at the Amherst College in 1876 looked into him a bit terrible human yeah I think he's been oh, terrible human we're not supposed to use the system anymore I don't think we, we? wow Riley I believe he's been cancelled he's been cancelled but we've cancelled the system <laughs> now no, the whole it's system. a hell of a system to cancel <laughs> Robert Frost the poet was uh, from there as well um, Noah Webster was from there as well of Webster's oh, Dictionary really? yeah he, he lived there and he started writing it there so um, not all these people were born there but they he did lived huge in Amherst chunks. and then he went to Baltimore and then he went to Chicago and then he went <laughs> yep. yes. I wanted to see how long alphabet just he was doing a <laughs> Oh, what was your next one? Denver? Yeah. <laughs> Go on, what would be next? I didn't have one after that. An American place beginning with E. East Virginia. Yeah, that's yeah. not a place. No. <laughs> there's Virginia and there's West Virginia. Oh my God. <laughs> I meant the east of Virginia, obviously. 
she was such an interesting character. So, I mean, first of all, she was really funny and fun. I think that people, because they know of Emily Dickinson as this person who only ever wore white, which she did, and she, she never she was, left She was picturing a few other things. She, like, in fact, I think in the only f- picture we've got of her, she's not wearing white. Again, sorry, when oh. I say only ever, uh, it's weird because pictures in black and white, so she's wearing black, presumably. <laughs> Just grey. Yeah. Um, this is after she became a recluse. About the last 20 years of her life, wasn't she? Yeah. Became recluse but she was very funny if you read her poems they are kind of witty or dry or piss takey um I, I always thought like one of the best opening lines to a poem was one of her most famous poems which opens because i could not stop for death he kindly stopped for me which mm. i just love as a bit of i don't know it's a humorous it's dark and it's an excellent poem but i think she she did think about publishing a lot she knew she was great it wasn't like mm. she had no idea she was great. She wrote to all these famous writers and publishers who said, please let me publish your poems. And she would say, oh no, it'd be dreadful being published. I'm not nearly egotistical enough for that. How dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog to tell your name the live long June to an admiring bog. So she had it in her mind. She was quite like Lady Doth Protest too much about it, I think. Mm, you wow. Know? Yeah, Just she, a uh, quick reminder, Andy's new novel will be out. Uh, <laughs> <in> a- <laughs> By the time you listen to I'm it. regretting it. Yeah. <laughs> For uh, you, she, the she admiring wrote, bog of the listeners. <laughs> she wrote to a guy called Thomas Wentworth Higginson um, asking if she could possibly, or if her poems were good enough to be published, I should say. Uh, and he actually thought that her poems were too eccentric to be published at the time. But he told her to avoid sloppy dashes. Um, which, if you've read any Emily Dickinson, it's just dashes. It's almost all dash. It's just dash. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's like half of Morse code, her poetry. (laughs) Right. I would say go back and ignore the dashes, because that, I remember when I was younger, that really put me off, because it seems so jerky. But then if you ignore them and pretend they're normal punctuation. Um, Just quickly on the uh, Higginson man who reviewed, uh, sort of looked over her poetry. So he said her writing was, I'm quoting it, so peculiar, it seems as if the writer might have taken her first lessons by studying the famous fossil bird tracks in the museum. Okay, this is interesting. Amherst, again, like great literary womb, all of this, had these bird tracks in stone, which were the first dinosaur tracks ever found. Mm. And they were found by a 12-year-old ploughboy called Pliny. Really? Weird. And uh, he he was called Pliny Moody, amazing name. Mm -hmm. And this was 40 years before the word dinosaur was coined, really. Oh, yeah. But they were known, they were nicknamed, these tracks, as the marks of Noah's raven. Wow. That was what they were called, this lovely sort of evocative nice. phrase for dinosaur footsteps. And that was Raven. And Emily Dickinson wrote The Thing with Feathers. And dinosaurs have feathers. Oh, my what God. Is, it, is, is that where we're going? Delicant. What I'm saying is it's all connected. <laughs> oh, my God. Is that your favourite one of her poems? Oh, I don't really have one. I, don't, I didn't know yeah. very much about her at all before uh, this. I, I think there's one that you would like if you ever heard it. <laughs> all overgrown by cunning moss. <laughs> there we go. Amen. Amen. She's a genius. Uh, what was her hit rate in terms of, we now know that she wrote about 1,800. That's what she left behind, poems. How many of those have been published? Remember? All of them. Well, yeah, well, now. No, but there's an incredibly weird story. Yeah. You know, oh, with the, the, so the ones that you're talking about have all been published. Yeah. And we can see all of them. Yeah. And I would say everyone I've read, I've enjoyed. Yeah. yeah. But... So, okay. Her sister found them all after she died. Lavinia, Vinny. And she destroyed a lot of paperwork, but correspondence and stuff like that. So there was this mad argument between two sides of the family. It's all a bit complicated because her brother was called Austin Dickinson. Um, and her brother had a mistress called Mabel Loomis Todd, right? So some of the poems went there. Some of the poems went to the family of her brother. And basically the two halves of Dickinson's literary estate were in different hands. 
neither family owned all the manuscripts and neither could produce a complete Dickinson. Mm. One side sold them to Harvard for about half a million dollars in modern money. So then Harvard have claimed ownership of Dickinson in general. And for, you know, for a while, people have asked permission to Harvard to quote lines of Dickinson. So basically, it's vexed. It feels like Amherst could be a good setting for a soap opera. Yeah, it is. they shagged on Emily Dickinson's <laughs> dining room table for the first time. What? Sorry, who? Who's who's they? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that should, that should have been clear. Austin and Mabel, who he was having an affair with. Okay, with an Emily and Lavinia new. It seemed like a bit this of an just open. Gossip, I know. <laughs> on the dining table. Ooh. <laughs> hey, we've got it in writing firsthand. So it's Austin and Mabel. Yes. Okay. And it's so weird because Emily never met Mabel, but yeah. she, you know they were having an affair for thirteen years, and Mabel would come round to Emily's house, which was next door and they'd have sex on the dining room table <laughs> and um, Mabel actually played piano for Emily once and Emily listened from behind a corner in the house wow. and sort of delivered her a glass of sherry at the end to say well done lovely playing wow. um, just very quickly on the the recluse and all wearing white and all that kind of stuff mm. Martha Nell Smith who's like one of the main scholars of Dickinson um, she works at the University of Maryland and she says that actually a lot of the image that we know now of Dickinson is kind of Victorian propaganda uh, and that I'll, I'll kind of say paraphrase what she says she says you know how right now if you have a rock star you kind of have this idea of sex drugs rock and roll wearing black all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. well in the late 19th century the idea of a woman poet would be someone who had a secret sorrow someone who was reclusive someone who dressed in white and she reckons that a lot of the stories that we hear now are quite exaggerated I mean Obviously, she did stay in the house a lot, but a lot of them are exaggerated because that was our idea of a poet at the time. That is really interesting. Yeah. And the sex, drugs and rock and roll. I mean, to be fair, people used to accuse her, not accuse her, but say it was all about her lost love or she was spurned in love. Yeah. And immediately after she died, like the 1890s, people are saying, well, she must have been uh, cheated on by some bloke. And yeah. actually, I think she might have shagged someone in her house. So we say oh, she was there we go. Over which <laughs> table, Anna? <laughs> <laughs> We think that I can't remember what he was called, but someone came to visit who was a great admirer and they had a little dalliance, maybe. She was, actually, she was quite sociable for a recluse. She was like, you know how hermits we always we've done we talked about hermits yeah, before, yeah. and they'd have people visit them constantly every day. And she did sort Do of. Do you think it was Webster? And he was like, nice ass, nice boobs, nice. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that, as well as a caterpillar which avoids predators by pretending to be a bird, there is a bird which avoids predators by pretending to be a caterpillar. (laughs) (laughs) You could pretend to be a caterpillar who's pretending to be a bird, and then you don't have to do any disguise. You just... Yeah, exactly. You just say, I'm a caterpillar. (laughs) (laughs) Is it? Because that does sound like it's come up with this and it's walked into the room full of birds and thought, I've fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) How is that helping? (laughs) These are two separate species. One of them, actually, we have mentioned before. I should uh, fess up. It's called the North American Walnut Sphinx Caterpillar. It's not a walnut. It's not a sphinx. But it screams like a bird, which is uh, the way it avoids predators. It's a weird Nelly Furtado version of that song, (laughs) doesn't it? Um, Yeah, it's like... it makes the alarm call that a bird would make if it had seen a bird of prey. Got and it. so the other birds that would be eating the caterpillar think, oh, God, there's a bird of prey. And, uh, they, yeah. and um, I, just one extra detail on it. The report on audubon.org, great bird website, says that the insect can be, I'm quoting here, as loud as a freight train from 50 feet away. Slightly have my doubts about it. It depends how close you move the caterpillar to your ear. So, you know, if you put the caterpillar right, right <laughs> down, like shove it into your ear, right next to your eardrum, it'll be the same as a train all that distance. I see what you're 
you're saying, I thought what they were saying here was that if you have a freight train 50 feet away and you have the Caterpillar 50 feet away... Why would be- it? <laughs> <laughs> it feels like that's a pointless use of the word phrase 50 feet. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so anyway, um, the bird, just quickly, is called the Cinereus Mourner bird and it lives in the Amazon, so it's probably not going to come across this Caterpillar anytime soon. And the chicks imitate poisonous caterpillars, specifically the chicks. They have these spiky orange feathers and um, it moves when its parents are away it moves in this weird slinky way and it looks genuinely exactly like a poisonous caterpillar local to the it's, region it's you've seen the footage? it's insane it's yeah it's absolutely insane and it does this right at the beginning so it's only the first 20 days that it mimics <laughs> this caterpillar and it's yeah when you see pictures of it it just looks exactly like this caterpillar and when even the mother comes back to feed them so it's because the mother has to go away do all the foraging that they're open to predators it's only when the mother comes back and makes the actual like bird call like that they go oh okay now we can give it up because if she comes back and doesn't do that they still pretend to be the caterpillars it's absolutely incredible i would bring if i was a predator i would bring back one of those caterpillars and i would make the caterpillar do a bird call and then trick the chicks into thinking that it was their parents yes exactly but they sort of like it's not even just the look they're the same size as the caterpillars as well they're 12 centimeters long i mean it's yeah that feels important when it comes to camouflage you know if they make themselves look like an elephant but they're 12 centimeters long no one's gonna get tricked by that Uh, the caterpillar it looks like is from the family Megalopygidae, and you might have seen this caterpillar or a related caterpillar on the internet because it's got very bushy sort of blondish hair um it, they're actually pointy kind of venomous bristles that they have mm. um, but they have been known as the trumper pillar because it looks like donald trump's hair has fallen oh, off that yeah yeah that's yeah. so cool i didn't realize they were in that they're family. related yeah are we yeah. are they and have they evolved to disguise themselves as donald trump to escape um execution <laughs> 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 they do look like the ones that they disguise themselves look a bit like that Donald Trump hair one, right? Yeah. They're quite kind of bushy and, and yeah, blonde. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just the color difference. Like these yeah. ones are orange, but they both look a bit quiffy. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a thing called um, Batesian mimicry, isn't it? The bird is definitely doing this because it's where a harmless species looks like a noxious species, so predators avoid them. I think that and, and a type of owl are the only two that do the bait scene mimicry. There's an so, owl that burrows underneath the ground, and when it feels like a predator is coming in, it hisses like a rattlesnake. It's got like a tss kind oh, of rattlesnake okay, thing. Okay. Okay. Uh, there's a caterpillar called the Biston Robustum caterpillar, and it can make itself look like a twig. Okay, right, that's good. Standard camouflage. Mm. Yeah, but it can also make itself smell exactly like a twig. Isn't cool. that cool? That is so. So good. not only will like a bird going past will see a twig and not go and eat it. If there's an ant that goes past it, it'll walk along the twig and then it'll just walk along the caterpillar and think that it's on a twig. And the reason that we know that works is if you put the caterpillar on another twig that smells different, the ants will notice it. Oh. So it'll only hide it on this very specific thing. And they hunt by pheromones or they, you know, they detect things through pheromones and through smell. So So does it have to smell like the twig of a particular plant? The one that it's on, yeah. So it needs that plant identification app, presumably, to work out which tree to get up into. I just got that app. It's changed my life. Really? Because I find it's not very reliable in my garden, I must say. I've uprooted everything. (laughs) (laughs) You've bought yourself a horse chestnut scent and you lie on branches. That is so cool. That is amazing. And they get their smell probably by eating bits of that plant. So that's... Uh, Okay, right. 
Um, have you guys seen the great potu? No. Such a good bird. It's so basically big animals that are camouflaged are kind of cool to us in a way, right? Yeah. And the yeah. great potu is a 60 centimeter tall bird that disguises itself as a tree branch. And it's such a great life because wow. it just stands on a tree. It has exactly the right colorings to look like sort of broken up bark. And it has to stand at a bit of an angle because, you know, a branch will branch off uh, the main yeah. trunk at an That's angle. Cool. So it leans forward a little bit, points its beak right upwards um, so that it just goes up in a straight line. The only problem is it has these giant eyes which glow. Uh, yeah. So it's really oh, okay. <laughs> So what does it, what do people think that is? So it just closes its eyes. It has to close its eyes the whole yeah. time, but then that's not very useful for catching but prey. But it, it can't tell also if someone's approaching it. Exactly. Because if, if, it, if someone's approaching it or someone's nearby and it closes its eyes. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. Then how does it tell if the coast is clear? Because it, it's So when it closes its eyes, its eyes open. If God closes one eye, it opens another. It's got a tiny slit on its eyelid. Oh, and it's wow. actually able to move this slit around Stop depending on it. where what? it likes to look. What? So it can just peer through. That's, that's cool. 60 centimeters. Yeah. That's I would describe myself big. as two rulers. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Why are you going to make yourself transparent? No, well, I wouldn't rule that. Oh, yeah, but you want to, but if you're camouflaging, you want to be a transparent ruler, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I would just Good like point. grow the word shatterproof on my chest. <laughs> <laughs> Shout boing all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and then just eat unsuspecting, you know, school teachers. <laughs> um, humans camouflage, don't we? Yeah. From time to time. And war? In war, in World War Two, in fact, uh, there was at least one American soldier who would put lace doilies on his helmet to camouflage himself <laughs> whenever it was snowing. As a mm. piece of furniture. No, because it's white. Oh, it's I right. see. Okay. Yeah, that's very he's clever. That's what you put a doily on, isn't it? You put it all over, a, yeah. over the back of an armchair, I think. Yeah, yeah. A little doily. He's and not then... mimicking, mimicking anything. He's just trying to hide himself. There's a German disguised as a teapot sitting in some of the Brits. <laughs> Barracks. <laughs> closer, closer. Sarge, that chair's moving. <laughs> That'd be ridiculous. Um, that's incredible. Yeah, that's I saw so that picture. I saw a picture on Reddit, and I thought it couldn't possibly be true. Uh, but I found it in the Philadelphia Inquirer from 1945. So it definitely so it's did just happen. To, it's just to look blended with the snow, basically. Yeah, yeah. Definitely well, that, did happen. Good. We don't know that definitely did work, do we? No, we don't. <laughs> and this uh, picture was in 1945, so we certainly got to the end of the war okay that's good that's amazing um, i was reading about a trend in parent stuff parent clobber uh, a trend of you know baby carriers slings that you like put a the baby papoose in. kind of thing like a papoose yeah yeah um but there's a growing trend um for ones aimed at men to have them in camo coloration uh-huh. Oh, yeah. So that men feel less uncomfortable carrying the baby around, oh, right? Like really? full camo gear, so you feel like you're in jungle warfare, but actually you're just taking your okay, baby to so the I... shop. So no one's going, "What baby?" <laughs> <laughs> it's it's for men who still want to play the field a bit, maybe yeah, yeah. chat some people up, disguise the baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they're in bars, camo, <laughs> shouting up women. <laughs> yeah, pretty single and free and easy at the moment. <laughs> What's that? Oh, it's my uh, my pager. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Pager. <laughs> Andy's chatting up is quite a long time ago. Last time you were chatting anyone up, I think we've established these men are pretty old school. So. He's a doctor. That's it. He's a doctor. He's a doctor. They still use pagers. Um, yeah, cool. yeah. It's, it's quite Piers Morgany, isn't it? Yeah, was very, he not? Yeah. Was he the one who yeah. kind of said, "Oh, I can't believe this 
The celebrity man is carrying a baby. It was Daniel Craig, was I think. It? Yeah, literally James Bond himself carrying a baby, and Piers Morgan's going. Oh. He's actually doing it in every Bond movie. You just can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> Very irresponsible. Do you remember a few years back when Trump set up the Space Force? Oh yeah, the, really? yeah, yeah. There was they did the official uniform of the of the Space Force. It wasn't like, his idea, was it? There was a caterpillar on his head who was whispering <laughs> the idea to him. That would explain an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, when they released it, they got mocked a lot for it because it was camouflage gear. It oh, well, was, like jungle camouflage. Yeah, jungle camouflage was <laughs> uh, <yeah>. space forces. <laughs> Whereas what you should wear in space, I guess, is one of those kind of kids' pajama sets that has a black <laughs> all sky the and all the constellations. <laughs> <laughs> Who attacked you? Well, I don't know. It looked like a Ryan, maybe. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy at Andrew Hunter M, James at James Harkin, and Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, you can go to our group account, which is at No Such Thing, or our website, No Such Thing as a Fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. Do check them out. Also, check out our upcoming tour dates. They're happening later this year. We'd love to see you there. Otherwise, do come back next week. We'll be here with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.